For those of you that are here in, in person, you can find it in our Pew Bible on page 1014. I'll be reading from the ESV version. Let's begin. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God's chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into a marvelous light. Once you were not a, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. May God bless the reading of his words. Now I'd like to turn the time over to Pastor Jeff as you speak to us in the sermon of persecution. <laughs> Not happy news. If you don't follow basketball, the, the, the Boston Celtics are currently playing in the Eastern Conference Finals. I mentioned them because uh, if you're a fan of any team in a sport, it doesn't have to be the Celtics or basketball, I, I think you'll get this. Sports is a way for us to look at how we experience honor and shame collectively. We identify with the team, the group of players. Last night, unfortunately, the Celtics lost. We don't just say that the Celtics lost. Some of us will say that we lost. And there's a commonality, and a, a connectedness to it, right? that we are not alone in experiencing and bearing the disgrace of our team losing or the honor of our team winning. So even though you and I weren't at TD Garden on the court you know, making buckets, we bear that honor or that shame together if we're part of that group. And this idea of honor or shame in a, this collective sense, is, it's important, it's helpful, because it serves as the backdrop to our passage this morning in 1 Peter. Now, our Western society tends to think in, more so in individualistic terms. Right? And usually in, more in terms of guilt rather than shame. And so guilt might be something like, I, I did something bad. And shame in an individualistic sense might be more, I am bad. So one has to do with what you did, the other one has to do with who you are. And I expect that most of us would have experienced or felt feelings of shame before. Feelings that are tied to, 
to how we view ourselves, not just how we view what we did. At the same time, many of us, some of you, have grown up in a bicultural environment where the shame that we feel, the shame that we experience, might be a little bit more Eastern than Western. You know, it's a shame that experienced by a lot of honor-shame cultures. It doesn't have to be necessarily East Asian cultures. It might be Middle Eastern cultures. And it definitely is the, the culture that these early Christians in First Peter find themselves in. And so there's a, a communal, this relational sense to this understanding of shame that is providing the backdrop to what Peter is writing this morning. And so these early Christians like maybe some of us, what we feel, what we experience is not simply I am bad, but I am bad in society's eyes or in the eyes of my family or in the eyes of my community or whatever group that we might insert there. Honor and shame uh, in this context has a lot to do with perhaps gaining the respect of others or, you know, it has a lot to do with thinking about how what we do and who we are and what we say, how that reflects on the whole group, and the whole group bears that shame, not just yourself. And so this is how one scholar writes about honor and shame, and he's actually writing about the honor and shame culture of the New Testament. But I think some of it might still resonate today. Honor, he says, is the esteem in which a person is held by the group he or she regards as significant others. It is the recognition by the person's group that he or she is a valuable member of that group. In this regard, it is having the respect of others. Now, if honor signifies respect for being the kind of person or doing the kinds of things that the group values, then shame signifies, in the first instance, being seen as less than valuable because one has behaved in ways that run contrary to the values of the group. So you kind of get this emphasis on group, right? And now in our passage this morning, Peter is presenting three groups of people. Jesus as one group, believers, these early Christians that Peter's writing to, and then this third group, persecutors, people who are persecuting these early Christians. And Peter's writing to these early Christians who are confused. They're discouraged. They're facing challenges because of the persecution they're receiving because of their faith. Maybe it's, you know, because of social ostracization or recrimination or whatever it might be. And this persecution that they're experiencing comes in the form of this honor and shame mentality. These Christians, because of their allegiance to Christ, their commitment to one another as the church, they are shamed by the society, by their work guilds, by the communities that they're in, by maybe even their family. They brought shame to their family for not conforming to the values and the conduct of the wider Greco-Roman society. And so what, Paul, uh, what Peter sets out to do in this letter is to encourage them and to remind them of where they stood spiritually with God and where they stood socially with the community of Christ, the church. Because these two things mattered more than their social standing with society, with their community that they're in. 
So this morning, we're continuing our sermon series, Bearing the Windload, How to Persevere in Trials. The specific trial this morning, as John mentioned, is on persecution. It's not, a hard, it's not an easy topic. So if you have your Bible, you can open with me to 1 Peter 2, 4-10. to And Peter gives three points that we're going to see in our passage this morning. Three points when it comes to facing suffering. Suffering of this particular kind. First, he points out that Jesus was rejected by men, but chosen by God. So twice in our passage, Peter points out that Jesus was rejected. You know, verse 4 and 7, he really wants to hone in on that point. That Jesus first, before us, experienced shame in the sense of not conforming to the values and the conduct of the, of the Pharisees in the world. And yet, Peter points out that Jesus was, in the sight of God, chosen and precious. He was honored. So he says Jesus is not just a living stone, but he's a cornerstone. And this, this picture of a cornerstone could have different you know, architectural uses, and a common one is this, that, that the cornerstone would be the first stone in a new building that would be laid first to make sure that the entire building would be on a straight and level foundation. So all the other stones that would follow from it would be laid in a straight and level way. And so these builders in verse 7, who represent these, this, this third group of persecutors, have decided to reject Jesus as a stone. They, are, they have their own building project. And they decided not to build with their building with him in it. But it turns out that though they shamed Jesus, though they rejected him, though they cast him out, God chose him to be the cornerstone. So right from the start, Peter is laying out the experience of suffering that Jesus, our Lord and Savior, endured. And then he makes this comparison with those who follow Jesus. His disciples. Jesus is a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. And guess what? He calls all of us, you yourselves, like living stones. So when he makes that connection, Jesus a living stone and us as living stones, the, the point that he's making is that the rejection that his readers are experiencing, maybe some of us too, a level, and definitely our brothers and sisters in different parts of the world, the rejection that we might experience from society, from the world, corresponds to the rejection that the living cornerstone Jesus first experienced. And because Christ experiences rejection in this shame in a communal sense, collective sense, it shouldn't be a surprise that we do as well. In fact, should be a given. Jesus warned us, John 15, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, that a servant is not greater than his master, and that they persecuted me 
they will also persecute you. Peter does a second thing, too, in these first two verses. First, he kind of lays out this paradigm of suffering in Jesus Christ for us. And then he reminds these early Christians of which group they're part of, this community that they're part of. He paints a picture of the believers as a house, a group, a community, a family, a church. You remember we're talking again about honor and shame in an Eastern framework. And so there's a a collective sense to shame, not just an individualistic internal feeling, which is true, but it's in light of this bigger picture. So like the author said earlier, shame is being seen as less than valuable because one has behaved in ways that run contrary to the values of the group. So in these early days of the church, these early Christians might be experiencing shame because of how their decision to follow Jesus reflects on their family, how it reflects on their work, on their communities, on their societies, on the groups that they're in. They feel that shame. They might be experiencing shame because of their decision not to indulge in gladiator combats or other pleasures of that time. But Peter is reminding them that though they are experiencing the shame from the groups that they're in, they together as living stones, are living stones, being built up as a spiritual house. Together they are the church. Together they are the community of Christ. And they are accepted by God and by each other. There's a, a story about a Spartan king who boasts to the, this visiting monarch who would come and inquire about the walls of Sparta. And the visiting monarch would, would come and look around. He doesn't see a walled city, and so he asks the king, where are the renowned walls of Sparta? Sparta, the Spartan king, points to his army. and says, these are the walls of Sparta. Every man a brick. The, the image Peter gives in his letters is of a building, not a wall of defense, but the idea, I think, remains the same. That each living stone, you and I, we're part of the whole spiritual house. And Peter, again, is, is reminding these early Christians and us today that, look, we, we may be social rejects, but our spiritual standing with God, our social standing within the community of faith is on solid ground. And we keep that in mind as we persevere in faith, bearing this windload, this particular windload. The passage continues on to explain how this might be so. <clears throat> so verse six, to, uh, verses 6 to 8, Peter says, Actually, there is honor for those who believe and shame for those who don't. And so he actually reverses what they might be feeling at the time. And it's very easy for them, maybe for us, that what we feel must be true. So if I feel shame because of my faith, then my faith must be faulty or my faith must be wrong. But he seeks to correct that false notion. There's two building projects happening in our passage this morning. 
Verse 7, the builders, right? Again, this third group, three groups, Jesus, believers, and persecutors. The builders are this group of persecutors who are building something. They've rejected Jesus. In this second group, the believers, they're being built up. So two building projects that lead to very, very different conclusions. Peter, again, is correcting these early Christians but what they might be feeling. They are experiencing shame. That is a very real and raw thing. Peter comes in and reminds them, no, actually, ultimately, there's honor for those who believe and shame for those who don't. He reverses it. There's one scholar who's describing what these early Christians might be receiving. And as I read what he says, it might be a little bit familiar even today. He says, these early Christians were receiving a barrage of verbal abuse designed to demean, discredit, and shame the believers as social and moral deviants endangering the common good. This procedure of public shaming was employed as a means of social control with the aim of pressuring the minority community to conform to conventional values and standards of conduct. So as I was doing research and I was reading this, I was like, wow, this isn't too far from what we might feel today or what we might experience today. Maybe less so in in America, but definitely in in other parts of the world. Faith is not an easy thing to talk about. Not an easy thing to, to bring up in a lot of contexts when, when it may not be that apparent that it's part of the discussion. But for us as Christians, faith is part of everything that we do. It informs all of our choices, our decisions, our values, our attitudes. But again, it's, it's hard to talk about it. Sometimes it's even hard to talk about it in church, ironically. Maybe some of you have felt the need to keep silent about who Jesus is because you felt it would be awkward. You felt embarrassed, ashamed, because it would run contrary to the norms and values of the group that you're in, this collective sense of shame. You don't, you don't, we don't want to be misunderstood as endangering the common good, but what happens is that the shame that we sometimes feel leads us not just to silence, perhaps, but apostasy. Right? Because at some point, that shame that we feel leads us to think, no, this is, is not right. Let me cross the line. There's another article that, that came out a little while ago that, that made an interesting observation that this Eastern uh, mindset of honor-shame framework has actually shown itself, has made its way west. And this author calls cancel culture, points out that cancel culture is one of the ways in which this Eastern honor-shame mentality has traveled west, that when we cancel a person, one mistake is not forgivable because it's not just a guilty act now. We turn them into a shameful person. 
They are bad in the eyes of society. They have run against the norms, the conventional values, the standards of the larger group. And so we have shamed them. We have cast them out. And what Peter does is different, though, I think. Even while he is operating in this honor-shame mentality, his tactic isn't to shame believers into continuing to believe, even though the wider society might be shaming the believers to conform. Instead, he reminds them that, look, there is honor received in being right with God, in being part of the community of faith. I think this is important because sometimes, sometimes our response to shame is more shame. And so you have the wider community, uh, the families, whatever these early Christians might be experiencing, what we might be experiencing, shaming Christians. And this public shaming, again, is a means of control to pressure them to conform. But sometimes our response then, as the church, or as Christian families, some of you might have experienced this, is then to shame the same very Christians to conform. But it doesn't work, right? Peter doesn't do this. Instead, he reminds these early Christians of who they are in a positive light, not in a shameful sense. So at the close of our passage, he says, verse, verses 9 to 10, But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He reminds them of who they are. He reminds them of their own testimony, of how they were in darkness, of how they came into light. And he says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So this last point, three points, again, in terms of facing suffering. We are God's people who proclaim his goodness. Again, Peter gives this positive view of the church, of us. He reminds us of the group that we're in, that there's no shame here. There's honor in being right with God. And what happens now? Even while facing persecution, or more relevant to us, maybe social rejection, Peter reminds us that the purpose is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Paul writes for us in Romans, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So social ostracization may occur. We may experience ostracization or rejection or awkwardness or embarrassment. Shame in its collective sense, Eastern sense, may be felt by a lot of us. But Peter reminds us of where we stand with God, where we stand with his church. And even as persecution in whatever form it comes may happen, the need to not be ashamed of the gospel, but to proclaim it continues to be a necessity. By now, uh, you, you may know that every week we, we pray for these uh, ministry partners that we support 
Some of them might be organizations and some of them might be individuals. And most of them will record a video that, uh, so that we get to know them more as people than as prayer requests. But there's a number of ministry partners and missionaries who we support and we pray for and we, uh, who serve in sensitive countries, sensitive situations. So we can't pray for them by name. Earlier this week, you know, I reached out to Eric Chu. He's a, the chair of our missions committee. I asked him to share with me a little bit more about who, these people that we support because oftentimes it's so easy to glean over them as, as just one big group, right? And to pray for them in a very general sense. But these very people are, a lot of them are serving in honor-shame cultures. A lot of them are experiencing persecution or are ministering to people who are experiencing the very things that the early Christians in First Peter are experiencing. So he, he shared with me a little bit of uh, information that I've been allowed to share with you. A lot of these believers, a lot of these missionaries are serving in these similar contexts where new believers are experiencing the shame from their family or their community for choosing Jesus. We have missionaries in, in North Africa, in Southeast Asia, where the areas where they serve are deeply rooted in, in Muslim beliefs. We have missionaries in, in countries where the minorities are being marginalized by the government. And citizens don't have the same freedoms that we do to worship Jesus. We have missionaries, as we prayed for this morning, who are using their professions as a means to bring the gospel to people in a country where normally people of faith wouldn't be allowed to go in or missionaries wouldn't be allowed to go in. We have had missionaries, people, partners in the faith, co-workers for the gospel of Jesus Christ, who have been kicked out, who have had their lives uprooted, kicked out of the country because of the desire to share the good news of Jesus because they are not ashamed and it's not easy. These are brothers and sisters who understood where they stand with God and are bringing the gospel to people and as they believe also understand where they stand with God even as they might experience a lot and a lot of shame from the groups that they're in. And yet they continue to proclaim his goodness. Tamerlan the Great, he was a conqueror in the 14th century. He nearly killed off Christianity in parts of Asia. He was called the exterminator for his massacres and his persecutions. And there's a historian, Samuel Moffey, writes about Tamerlan in his book. He makes this point about evangelism and the church. He says, what finally withered the proud advance of Christianity across Asia was not the persecution of a Tamerlane, though the permanent effects of that ravaging destruction still linger. More crippling than any persecution was the church's own line of decisions to compromise evangelistic and missionary priorities for the sake of survival. So ironically, in trying to survive by compromising their evangelistic and missionary priorities, they almost died. The lesson here is for us, even as we might face challenges 
in the increasing secular world. It is to remain vigilant, to persevere in proclaiming the goodness of God because we do believe that it is for the common good of the world that people know Jesus. And the question for us, too, is how are we, as Crossbridge, as CBCGB, or as individual, are we compromising our evangelistic and missionary missional priorities for our own comfort, for our own survival? Let us continue to persevere in faith. Let us not be ashamed of the gospel because we are God's people. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, Lord, we give thanks to you for the good news of Jesus, the good news of the gospel, that we are saved by grace through faith, not because of our own righteousness, God, but because of you, of what you have done. Help us to be mindful, to remember this community that you have brought us in, where we do not, need not experience shame, but know that we are right with you and allow that to be the motivation for us to proclaim your excellencies, your mighty acts, where you first brought ourselves out of darkness into marvelous light, and we hope to see that too in the communities and the groups that we're in. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.